Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent, and as you probably know by now, uh, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, uh, the story of two 11-year-old cousins who are also detectives who get into uh, all sorts of sci-fi, uh, high-concept adventures involving you know, giant robot bees, alligator people. There's a cyborg conspiracy coming up here in early 2021 to look forward to. Uh, and good news, you can start that series with the first book for free. You can get Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is an audiobook, and I know you like listening to things. You can get it as a paperback, but the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening to this. You could download it to the device on which you are listening to this very podcast right now, and then it'll just be there. It'll be waiting for you when you have a moment for it. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, uh, I've written some horror stories for older readers, such as my young adult novel, All Together Now a Zombie Story, or my very much adult serial horror novel, uh, The Book of David, which is uh, five chapters long. You can get the first chapter, The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent, as an ebook for free uh, whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold, or if you check the back catalog early on in uh, quarantine for COVID 19, uh, I recorded uh, an amateur version of that audiobook for you to enjoy. So you're, you're welcome. Um, we are, this is what, episode 98, so we've got, uh, counting this, three episodes left here in 2020, uh, and then we're going to take a little bit of a break after episode 100 for the holidays. I'll be back uh, in late January with new episodes for you. I've already recorded one, and we've got several more scheduled. Um, but uh, we'll be releasing uh, one, another, one of those massive clip shows for you to enjoy over the holidays. So don't worry, plenty plenty of uh, content coming your way. Uh, next week, we'll be back with author G. Neary. Uh, and the week after that, editor Cheryl Klein. Um, so just a, a fantastic way to close out. But today, oh my gosh, prepare yourself, esteemed reader, because we're talking to best-selling author Melissa De La Cruz. And what don't we talk about? Uh, she's got all kinds of great advice for us. Uh, we talk about um, her many, many novels. I think, I think she said 63 was the, the current count at this point. Uh, we talk about her newest, Never After the 13th Fairy. Uh, we talk about uh, her best-selling series, The New Blue Bloods Coven. Uh, we talk about her work uh, writing The Descendants, which is hugely popular. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know we didn't get through the whole uh, episode without me asking her about Gotham High uh, and her work with uh, Bruce Wayne and, and Jack Napier and uh, Selena Kyle and all my, my favorite characters. Um, we talk about how she built her career. We talk about how she keeps her continuity miniseries. She gives all kinds of great tips and advice, just a wealth of information that you're about to enjoy. So I'm going to stop talking so we can get it started. Uh, episode 98 starts right now. Melissa De La Cruz, welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, it's good to uh, be here. Hi, Mabel. <laughs> Uh, themed audience knows that Mabel can't resist making an appearance every every episode. Um, so here she is. Hopefully she'll behave herself. We'll see. Um, so I never summarize anyone's biography or anyone's book. Uh, it's just a great way to get myself in trouble. Uh, <laughs> the best place to start is if you would kind of give an esteemed audience a little bit of an overview of your background. Sure. Uh, I have written, I would say, almost 60 books. I actually think the count is 63. I've written uh, mostly for the young adult market, uh, but also middle grade and adult and nonfiction. I started as a journalist. I uh, was a beauty editor and a fashion editor, and I worked at Allure magazine. And I wrote for Harper's Bazaar, Marie Claire, Cosmopolitan, Teen Vogue. Um, and then I published my first novel called Cat's Meow, which was a women's fiction uh novel that kind of came out during the Bridget Jones era. And uh, now I mostly write books for kids. I've got outdated information. I had just over 50, which had already floored me, but I uh, coming <laughs> up on 63. Wow. <laughs> that is incredibly prolific. Have you been, when did you first know you wanted to write fiction and, and when did you decide you specifically wanted to focus on young adult and middle grade? I always wanted to be a writer and I always wanted to write books. Um, 
the uh, journalism uh, was a way to write books because I wrote my first novel that was unsold at 22 and my agent sent it to a bunch of editors and one of the editors said, have you ever written for magazines or newspapers? And I said, no. And he said, well, you know, I kind of advise, you know, uh, people who want to be writers to kind of learn how to be a professional writer, you know, get your um, clip file uh, going, you know, make a name for yourself uh, and then, you know, uh, try to sell your novel. So that's kind of what I did um, with his advice. I started writing for magazines and newspapers. And then I wrote a second novel, which was also unsold. And then by the time my third novel uh, was out for submission, uh, he was one of the editors who bid on it. So it took about five years <laughs> from that lunch meeting. <laughs> that's amazing. Yes, you had quite a quite an extensive career in journalism, which I assume is, is probably still kind of ongoing uh, when, whenever you have time. Uh, not really. Kind of ended. Yeah. You know, I did try to keep it up a little bit. Um, mostly when I moved to Los Angeles, because I was in New York, uh, and that's where I was a journalist. And uh, and I thought I would be able to do the same thing here that um, I did in New York, but sadly it was a little harder uh, to do that. So, um, but it was okay, you know, because the books kind of took off. And you had asked me about when I, I started writing for young adults or knew when that's what I wanted to do. So I think uh, The Au Pairs was my third or fourth published book. But when I was writing it and I was on book tour for a book that I was promoting that I'd written with my friend called How to Become Famous in Two Weeks or Less. And we were on book tour for this book, which was before the reality show um, kind of advent of pop culture. It was before Paris Hilton was Paris Hilton. <laughs> and it was funny because she actually hosted one of our launch parties for that book. So while I was on tour for this book, uh, I was writing The Au Pairs and I remember being on the plane and writing it and thinking, oh my God, this is really fun. And this is what I should really be doing. You know, I really enjoyed writing for teenagers and I really um, thought that my voice kind of lent itself well to that. And I always tell people that's why um, the reason that I write for teens is because, you know, when you're 17, the cool guy in the motorcycle, you know, shoplifts and is so amazing. It's so cool at 17 and such a loser at 35. So <laughs> we like to stay when it's all... Looking back to a time when those when those fellows were cooler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, lots to to unpack there. Cause I know you. I, I had uh, seen elsewhere that you had a day job, uh, and that you missed the sound of other people in an office typing on computers. I imagine uh, extra this this is year of twenty twenty. Um, and that you had thought about renting an office just so you could be surrounded by coworkers again. Is that any, anything come from that? Uh, thus so far? the five years that I was um, trying to uh, get my first novel published, I was a computer programmer and I worked in an office and I would write my novel, you know, kind of on the sly at work. And yes, the very soothing sounds of, you know, the phones ringing, murmuring and people typing, you know, just kind of imprinted <laughs> in my brain as the best, you know, kind of way to write. Um, yeah, you know, I've kind of gotten used to not having that anymore. But yeah, and uh, I do sometimes write at kind of, uh, you know, co communal workplaces like we work or Soho House, um, I find it a little too distracting now. I think everybody's chatting too much. <laughs> the thing about working at a bank is that, you know, we were all kind of quiet and at our desks <laughs> playing, mostly playing solitaire, but you know. <laughs> I'm looking extremely busy and professionally yes. dressed. <laughs> There's gotta be like an ambient noises soundtrack you could get for your writing office. You could just play right? getting up the coffee in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, um, obviously, you're New York Times bestseller multiple times over. You've won multiple awards. Um, you're, you're kind of a big deal. You're writing for multiple huge series. 
Um, my uh, son has been watching The Descendants since we got uh-huh. Disney Plus. Uh, and so uh, he's six, but I told him I'm going to talk with the author of The Descendants books. He's, oh my gosh, very excited. Um, and even more excited because you've written uh, Hamilton uh, fiction as well. And then I'm excited because you've written Gotham High, which esteemed audience knows Batman uh, is, is, is um, a big part of my life, but probably larger than it should be for a grown man. But continues. <laughs> <laughs> So um, at what point did you feel like, oh, okay, uh, this has gone from something that I wanted to do to this is for sure a career. I made it or has that happened yet? Uh, You know, I always wanted it to be a career. Uh, I didn't really want to do anything else. I wanted to figure out how to make writing books be what I did all the time and my income. Um, And I think that's something that I was lucky enough, you know, to kind of do because I had a day job for about nine years and then I quit. Um, well, really I was laid off. <laughs> so who knows <laughs> if I if I would have um, written full time, but I had a day job and I, uh, I was laid off during the recession of 2000. And then um, I spent three months writing my first novel that was going to be published. And after that, you know, kind of being able to live uh, frugally and being able to say goodbye to my corporate job and not miss it at all. uh, And, you know, kind of live on, you know, what I'd made from the book kind of And then I'd written, I think, four, four or five proposals during that time as well. And I, I'm pretty sure I sold about three of them that summer. And after that, I thought, oh, I can, I can do this, you know? And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's so difficult to have a career in fiction. Um, But I think there's a little bit too much um, thinking sometimes that it's this miracle or this um, kind of impossible thing that can never be attained. Uh, you know, I mean, I do know a lot of, uh, writers who have, uh, you know, who still have day jobs because they don't want their income to be tied to their work. You know, they want to be able to quote, write what they like, you know, to have the freedom and to not have the stress of, um, you know, their creative work, um, having to provide their lifestyle. Um, I don't know, for some reason I was just always okay with that kind of stress, you know, with, I'd been a freelancer uh, when I got laid off. That's when I was also a journalist uh, full time. And uh, I was a freelancer, which meant, you know, I kind of lived by my wits, (laughs) you know, we had to pitch magazine editors, you know, all the stories. And then they would say, no, 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 yes, do that. And you kind of lived article to article a little bit. So I think between those two things, you know, uh, my freelance career, you know, and then, um, you know, kind of really enjoying my life in a way that I didn't when I had a corporate job, you know, made me um, kind of figure out how to have a career in writing books. There's no uh, sitting around all morning waiting till your second pot of coffee when inspiration finally strikes just past lunchtime. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I don't really believe in that, in the muse. <laughs> you got to just sit and do the work. <laughs> so what, uh, what, the, I mean, 63 books you must be writing all the time. What, uh, what does your writing schedule, what's your typical writing day look like? I, I think the other, I'm, I'm sorry to like keep bursting myths here, you know, but, uh, writing is very easy for me. Um, and I'm not writing all the time. I have a family. I have, um you know, a really big vacation schedule, <laughs> which I think is really a uh, part of the reason I'm productive. Um, and I was reading something on Twitter the other day from Maggie Stiefvater, and she said she was going to do NaNoWriMo, uh, not as, you know, she was going to have uh, a fully formed novel at the end of November, but she was going to have 50,000 words by the end of November. Uh, and she said, you know, I know I can do this because I can work for 90 minutes straight and pretty much uh, produce a short story. And if you do 30 short stories, you know, um, over the course of a month, you have a novel. And I would say that's about 2,000 words a day, probably, probably 3,000. So, you know, I, I can 
that's easily doable. Like when I read that, I said, oh, <laughs> I'm not the only one, you know. Um, and I think uh, having, you know, it's not about the eight hours in front of the computer. You know, it is about that hour and a half of extreme focus and um, knowing what you're going to write. So knowing what you're going to write, it's really easy to write. So you have to do a lot of pre-writing. You know, you have to kind of plan. I like to outline. I like to figure out who my characters are. I like to figure out what the story is and where it's going. And then once I start writing, it's really just kind of fleshing it out. Um, so I, I always say I do a lot of thinking. So a lot of my books, including Never After, that's coming out in December, I've thought about, you know, for years. Like, it's they, it's been in my head for a really long time. And then by the time I actually sit down to write it, it's kind of complete in my head. So in that way, um, you know, the work is, you know, not draggy. <laughs> but the other part of it is that, the you know, the 16 hours a day, the 20 hours a day when you spend in front of the computer, I think that's the last two weeks before the deadline. And that's really when the book also comes together. Because I always say it's the last two weeks when your novel, you know, really kind of becomes something and becomes a novel. So... And that has to be, the pressure has to be on <laughs> for that to kick in. <laughs> so how long are you spending, I mean, are you doing a full outline and are you sharing that with an agent and an editor to get their feedback before you proceed to draft? Um, uh, no, draft it's just my outline. I sometimes share it, you know, I sometimes don't. It just depends on my editor. You know, some of them like to see it. Uh, most fiction editors just want to see your, you know, your first draft. They really want to see the book, you know, um, they're busy too. Uh, they, uh, and you know, books are seen as, you know, um, your creative output. Um, I think some of them, you know, are kind of, they like, they like seeing an outline. Not really. <laughs> I would say, <laughs> you know, they bought the book. You know, so write it for us. <laughs> Send it in. <laughs> Fair enough. Why am I reading your outline? You, you got me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we paid you to figure that out. <laughs> so, okay. So before it's, it's, the, product, it's uh, so different from Hollywood. That's what's so amazing about publishing is that they want to see your creative vision, you know, in totality. In Hollywood, you send the outline, you send the second outline, you send the first outline. I mean, it's, uh, in Hollywood, they don't believe in you. <laughs> they want to see every step of the process, you know, to, to, uh, to assuage themselves. <laughs> well, you do a lot, of, uh, a lot of screenwriting as well, of course, right? You I do some. Do you switch back and forth pretty regularly, and is that comfortable for you? Uh, no, I mostly just write one Christmas movie a year. You know, I don't, I don't really, scripts are not my, um, my first love, I would say. I think, uh, I think they're fun to do. Um, and, uh, it's fun to have insurance <laughs> because <laughs> the Writers Guild for the Screenwriters Guild is much more favorable than the Insurance to the Authors Guild, which is almost negligent. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I'm not, I, I'd say, I would say, you know, I'm kind of a screenwriter by accident, <laughs> but definitely a novelist by trade. So you mentioned, so two weeks, you're, you're in front of the computer all day. Um, you said 14, 16 hour days. Um, what does your schedule? Draft, yes. Sorry. What, uh, how, how? How long does it take you to get to that point prior to that with the 90 hour, or I'm sorry, 90 minute days? I mean, it, it's so hard. There's no real schedule. I mean, I kind of work, I work a lot, but I don't, you know, so it's hard to talk about. I don't, I don't know. It's hard to explain. Um, you know, um, I can write a first draft in a month. You know, I can do the NaNoWriMo I always laugh at. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's just my life. <laughs> uh, you know, so, you know, some books take longer than others. Some books take six months to write the first draft. Um, some books take three. 
I, I would say three months is kind of my solid, you know, first draft um, pace. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, it just depends how well the book is hanging. I would say, you know, that kind of flurry of the two week, let's get this together kind of thing. I don't know if it happens for all my books. Some of my books are maybe a little bit easier maybe a little bit more well thought out that I don't have to do that. It's really on some of the books where I still haven't figured it out or I know there's something wrong with it or it's not quite sparking to life. Um, and I always say, I know when a writer has just written their book from the first outline, but hasn't rewritten it, you know, and I really think, you know, the books have to be rewritten many, many times before, um, before they get, you know, into that click where you feel that spark of life in the manuscript. Um, so I, I definitely want to get to that point. Uh, and sometimes it, it is that two week hell, hell week at the end. <laughs> so when, uh, when do you know that you've got it and you can sit back? Is it, is it because it's due tomorrow or the two weeks are at an end? When do you, when can you sit back and say, yes, this, this is it. I think when I feel really good about the characters, when I feel like they're really, um, you know, just the way the dialogue is snapping and just, you know, you can feel that it's real. You know, I think it's hard, it's hard to explain. <laughs> you know, I mean, I know, you know, books that are flat and, you know, and uh, when you read them, you're like, you're not moved, you're not, entertained you're not surprised maybe you know so um and uh yeah i mean i think i, I write them for myself and and as soon as i feel that i'm entertained and surprised and you know and i feel like i've done everything i can to write something you know surprising unpredictable but still moving and still logical you know and i've kind of pushed it and pushed it and pushed it but there's nowhere else I can take it and there's nowhere I, I can't make it any better without, you know, completely breaking it, let's say, um, is when you know you're done. So, yeah, because once you I mean, I've seen working with some of uh, my other writer friends, you know, and seeing their the way they write, um, you know, some people just keep adding and adding and adding. And like I sometimes have to tell my friends you're done. This is perfect. Stop adding, you know, whereas, um, whereas for me, you know, maybe I am more strict about it, but then I need to add, but then they'll be like, no, you need more here. <laughs> so do you have like a longstanding critique group or are you just swapping critiques as they become available? Not really. I mean, I just have a lot of, uh, my husband's an author too. So, we'll talk about what we're working on and what we need help on or, you know, just what we find amusing. Um, we just actually, today is one of the rare days we switched proposals. I said, you read this and I'll read yours. Um, and that was really fun, you know? So I think my husband is probably my closest uh, creative partner. Um, and, uh, and we do that a lot. Um, but sometimes you just need space and sometimes we won't talk about our work to each other because we're just sick of, talking about our work <laughs> and, you know, we got to talk about something else <laughs> at some point. Um, and then I have uh, two very good friends, Pseudonymous Bosch and Margaret Stoll. Uh, and yeah, when we're stuck or, you know, if we're proud of something, you know, we'll like, we'll say, Margaret will say, oh, read, read this comic. I just wrote the Spider-Man noir comic. I, I'm so proud of it. You know, she'll send us an early PDF and, you know, and we'll be really excited. Or I'll say, you know, I really don't know if this is working. Will you read this? You know, but it's kind of, it's, it's random. It's not like a, you know, a regular thing. It's kind of like an as needed basis. <laughs> and what, uh, what's your husband's name and what might, might, what might be a book that uh, steamed audience could run out and purchase by him? Oh, sure. Um, and his name is Michael Johnston. And he wrote a middle grade book called uh, Confessions of the Dork Lord. And it's really, really funny. And I think the middle grade audience would really enjoy it. It was an Amazon best book of the month when it came out. Oh, fantastic. Uh, and Mr. Johnson, if you're listening, 
we would all love to hear from you. Please come on the show. <laughs> He's much more fun than me. <laughs> well, so far, we're having a great time, I think. <laughs> uh, well, I've got other questions for you about writing and the writing process, but I know at this point in the interview, agents, publicists, everybody gets involved if we don't talk at least a little bit about Never After the 13th Fairy, which is available December 1st. Uh, so please tell us about the book and give us kind of an overview. Sure. Um, so Never After the 13th Fairy is coming out December 1st. Uh, it is a uh, fairy tale retelling. And it was inspired by uh, my discovery that the story of Sleeping Beauty doesn't end with uh, the prince waking up Sleeping Beauty with a kiss and, you know, everybody living happily ever after. In the original fairy tale, um, there's an ogre, there's an ogre mother-in-law, there's bloodshed, there's death, <laughs> there's all these horrible things that actually happen to Sleeping Beauty after she marries the prince, which I thought was so fascinating, you know, that it doesn't even have this happily ever after. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I want to do something uh, with this. And then it was also inspired by an idea I'd had, um, I, you know, it's so funny, and I always say, oh, I'll just write like a short story about it, but you know, I probably won't. So I'm just gonna put this out <laughs> in the ether. So I wanted to write a YA book, um, which fe which was inspired by um, Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie's uh, relationship, and they played Jon Snow and uh, and you greet on Game of Thrones. So in Game of Thrones. Ygritte dies, and it's so sad, you know, they're in love, and she dies, and then I saw a photo of the actors who played the characters, and they were getting married uh, in Us Weekly, <laughs> and I thought, oh my god, Jon Snow and Ygritte are together, <laughs> and I thought in this alternate world, you know, these characters that we loved had, you know, their happily ever after, and I thought, you know, there has to be something in there where I can do something with that, um, you know, about reality and fantasy, you know, kind of, you know, blurring in that way. Um, and, you know, it kind of went through a couple of iterations uh, and I and didn't quite work out as a YA. And then, but I always had that idea. And so when I had this idea for Sleeping Beauty, I said, why if I do something, you know, with a fan, you know, what if somebody had read this book series um, and was such a big fan of these books you know, this uh, fictional book called the Never After series, and then discovers that she, you know, is um, in the fantasy world. She goes into fantasy world, and she knows even more than the people who live there because she's an expert on the books. You know, like imagine a Potterhead, you know, waking up at Hogwarts. They know everything, you know. So I thought, you know, that would be such a fun um, kind of premise, uh to uh, to play with. And so in the books, you know, all the fairy tales that we know are wrong, you know, and there's uh, obviously some kind of a strange conspiracy, you know, that's keeping us from knowing it, uh, which is just hinted at in the first book. <laughs> the first book is a lot of um, kind of fun action and adventure um, and uh, has some, you know, kind of fun characters that Descendants fans uh, will will love. Do you, how many books do you have planned at present? And when can we look forward to them? Uh, they, they tend to buy two at a time. So they have bought two. And, uh, and uh, but they've said that they want to do more. Um, and, you know, this is a, it's a little bit more like Descendants, which is a little bit more open-ended. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> you know, um, they're, they're really fun to write. So I hope I get to write them for a while. Well, I mean, if you're doing fairy tales, there's always going to be something new you could uh, explore, right? Exactly. I think my friend uh, Sarah Milanowski, who writes Whatever After, it just signed her contract for number 18 and 19 in the series. And I said, oh, my God, your series is now an adult. <laughs> it can vote. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be a bittersweet day, both uh, joy at the accomplishment and also, oh, my Lord, where did the time go? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, if you uh, were to be visited by a character from a, a, a series, I would think being a, a Potterhead would be easy because when you get to Hogwarts, just don't go anywhere near Harry, Ron, or Hermione, and, and you're going to be fine. 
Exactly. Everybody else is just in school and, and learning magic. You stay away from those three, you're going to be all right. That's right. <laughs> but uh, if somebody comes to you from any series, um, your own or, or, or somebody else, uh, who would you want to come to to you and where would you want to go? Oh, um, well, I wrote a vampire series called Blue Bloods. Um, and there's a vampire in it named Mimi Force. And she's a lot of fun. And I think it would be really fun to hang out with Mimi. I think we'd probably go to a club in New York or Paris or wherever in her fancy private jet <laughs> or go shopping, you know. So, um, yeah, I'd like to see Mimi. Um, I, I would like to hang out with Gandalf, I think, too, you know. Gandalf could come up in his little, you know, pony carriage and, you know, his long pipe. <laughs> I think that'd be fun to see Gandalf. Would you want to be a hobbit or just you? I think hobbits are us. <laughs> you know, I, I I very much relate to the hobbits and their uh, you know their second breakfasts. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being a hobbit. It seems like a happy life. Shire looks nice. <laughs> I had a friend whose dream was while they were making the the Lord of the Rings movies. I guess they rented out those hobbit holes so that yeah. they could stay looking like they were lived in. So uh -huh. you could get it for a pretty decent rate. But the uh, deal was you had to keep up the lawn and, and make sure you're keeping up the the hobbit hole overall so it looked oh. lived in. So, that is the dream. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. That's crazy. Airbnb hobbit hole. <laughs> I, I'm, I hope that they've still got them open. I mean, that's got to be a huge cash maker. <laughs> I mean, oh, why yeah. else would you go to New Zealand if not to visit the Hobbit Holes? Oh, yeah. No, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Uh, and then, so with a series like this where, you know, two books for now, but sounds like pretty positive you're going to be going forward and you're always going to be expanding. And there, other than the fairy tales, there isn't an existing IP like the descendants or, or Gotham or something where you've got to keep some, some track of, of what's going on with the, somebody other than you. Um, how do you do your world building and how do you keep track of that? And how do you make sure that you're not um, screwing yourself for future books by closing off some possibilities? <laughs> Um, no, 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 you definitely always screw yourself for future books. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think what I've learned is, you know, if there's something that I think that I'm going to need in, you know, the, the immediate sequel to it, you know, I'll make sure, I'll try to make sure that, you know, I've opened, you know, kept a lot of things open, but, you know, if it's not for that book, like if I'm on book six, and I need something from book one. It's too late, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, you know. I think um, when I was writing Blue Bloods, I did plan like I knew all the backgrounds already, so I knew kind of the, you know, the history that I had to know, and I had, I already knew this terrible thing that had happened in the past that was slowly revealing. Um, so I tried to, you know, like I said, do a lot of pre-writing and do a lot of background work um, before I write. Um, and I think in series, yeah, it's really important to do something like that um, so that you know what's going on. You know, it's also, I mean, I remember talking to Holly Black and she said, you know, the best thing to do really is to write the next book before that book has come out yet, you know, um, and uh and she was like, so you just got to get on it. You know, I know you're really tired. You've turned in your book, but get on book two because, you know, when you've turned it in, you still kind of have a year with copy editing and layouts and editing to still, you know, move things around. So if you're like kind of moving, if you still can tweak book one, but you're actually already writing book two, it's really good for book two. So, um, so I try to do that. I fail a lot. I'm usually really tired after writing you know, um, a book in a certain series, I want to do something completely different and I want to switch my brain to a new project. It's hard to stay in the same project again. Um, so, um, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Holly, but that advice is really hard to follow for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I imagine that's uh, got to open up the possibility that, you know, say the editor says, well, we like that you've written a book. However, we want you to change 20 things about it. And you say, no, I can't. I've already written the second book. And those 20 things are are, are, are integral to the plot. 
<laughs> oh, they don't. They don't do stuff like that. Oh. <laughs> they, they don't say you know you have to change. Like, I, I, with editing, it's like let's tell the best story we can, you know. So it's more, I think, structural and more, um, you know, uh, making sure that the story is coherent. Um, but they would never say, "Oh, she would never be a vampire," or "Oh, you should make him human." Like they don't make those kind. That's more of again like a Hollywood note. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so, okay, so two books. Obviously, you know what's going to happen in book two at this point. Um, if you are to get on to book 18, do you have some kind of rough outline, even if only in your mind, of where you're going to take uh, everything? I'll, it's a really, I think I definitely want to discover the story a little bit more. Um, it's, it's, it's like the, the picture is kind of... Uh, you know, becoming less blurry, but it's a little blurry. So I, I have an idea of how it ends, um, but we'll see, you know, if I get to book 19, if that's still the, the case. <laughs> you know, you always think about, you know, long running series, like even How I Met Your Mother and how they had this idea for the end that completely did not work after whatever, <laughs> 10 seasons. <laughs> well, I think, I I don't know, I'm optimistic that that would be a good thing because that meant that your characters growed and changed, grew and changed, uh, and so did you. Yeah, oh. no, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think, and I think stories kind of, you know, if you're lucky enough to keep writing the same story for so many years, you know, I mean, it's even in a different time and, you know, your readers are different. I mean, especially in middle grade and YA, you know, if you write a series for several years, the kids definitely grow up. So, and, you know, 11 to 17 is very different. <laughs> but, of course, you're hopefully always uh, getting new readers as the series continues, right? Yep. Always the hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, okay. So how does that differ for you when you're creating your own characters, your own universe, your own rules? Versus you've got an existing IP. Is that um, more difficult, less difficult? I assume on the on the upside, you know the uh, reader already cares about the characters. You know some of the rules about who they are going in. Um, but then you, you don't have the, the total freedom that you do if you're working on a, an original IP. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's definitely different. Um, and it's a different job, even. You know, uh, with Descendants, you know, it was very much, you know, kind of a thrill and an honor to be able to write in the Disney universe. And I feel really lucky that I knew that universe really well because I was a Disney kid and my kid had just, you know, she was eight years old when we started Descendants. So we had just rewatched, you know, I had just relived my entire childhood. We had watched all the classic movies together. So I knew it really well. Um, and we were, you know, kind of in the whole Disney Channel watching phase, so I couldn't even make jokes about Disney Channel shows because I knew those really well. Um, and yeah, so I was really careful and I wanted to make sure that it lived up to these, you know, classic uh, movies of my childhood that I really loved. And, uh, and that was really, really fun to do, you know, to kind of feel like, wow, I'm, you know, kind of taking those characters and giving them, you know, a sequel, like another life. And that was really kind of amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a different, it's a different kind of work. Um, you know, when you write your own stuff, you can do whatever you want and, uh, and you can make, you know, make the changes that you want. But if you're working in, you know, somebody else's world, I remember uh, we would get notes like the mice in Cinderella do not speak English. They actually squeak. <laughs> and I would have to say like, oh, everybody's got a translator in their ear <laughs> because the mites were talking. <laughs> or, you know, the crocodile only goes TikTok. That's it. <laughs> you know, so there was somebody from Disney franchise who knew all, you know, all those little things, you know. So we were always, they would always flag and they would let me write whatever story I wanted, which was also really fun. Um, and they, they, the notes would always come back on something that I had completely, I, I would be like, oh my God, they're never going to let me do this. And they would be fine with some outrageous thing, to, you know, I'd written the books, but they'd be like, 
Tinkerbell has no descendants. <laughs> you know, so it was really funny, you know, because it was always not what I was worried about. <laughs> well, I mean, could you kill beloved characters if you if you were of a mind to? <laughs> Would they Would let I you get kill, away with that? Uh, beloved characters? Sure. Yeah, take some. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> they always come back to life anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Nobody's ever gone for more than a book or two. Exactly. <laughs> well, I wanted to, to ask about uh, taking liberties with characters, because obviously with Gotham High, uh, there are a number of departures um, from the original source material. You know, Alfred's actually uh, a biological uncle to Bruce, and he's openly gay. Um, you switch the race of Bruce Wayne, uh, Selina Kyle, multiple characters. Although, to be fair, uh, between Elseworlds stories and, and everywhere else, Bruce Wayne's been just about every race, which is <laughs> as it should be. So where, when you're doing that, where, where's the line? Where do you have to be faithful to the character enough that it's still recognizably Jack Napier, it's still Selina Kyle, uh, but you want to do your own thing and, 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 and create something new so we're not just regurgitating the same Batman story every time? Yeah, no, I, I think that's really important. Um, and on Gotham High was another, it was a different gig from Disney because they said, you can do whatever you want. Like, absolutely just go wild. Um, it's your take on Batman. Um, you know, none of these books are canon. These are, you know, seen as, um, you know, they're not origin stories. They're, you know, um, my take on Batman. Uh, and so I was really excited and I, you know, one of the first thing I asked was, you know, is it okay if I make Batman Chinese? Because I thought, you know, if he's going to be one of the richest, you know, people in the world, that would be so cool if his family's wealth came from Hong Kong. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if I said it, you know, um, in, you know, kind of a rich, uh, enclave, uh, that, uh, uh, where a lot of Chinese people live in America, which is Arcadia. <laughs> and, uh, and they were just so excited for that. Um, but, you know, it was interesting because my original take for Bruce Wayne uh, was not just that he was Chinese, but he was uh, kind of like a Chuck Bass. He was a party guy. He was, you know, somebody who was a little bit more like a great Gatsby character, you know, who wanted all this attention. And at that point, that's when DC said, Hmm, but he still has to be Bruce Wayne, you know? And I said, oh, that's right. Like, he can't be that guy because that's not Bruce Wayne. So so I think you have to be um, true to the spirit of the character. You know, he's still got to be broody and alienated, you know, and kind of an outsider. He's still got to be Batman. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't completely change, you know, the personality I think you have to have some of those recognizable qualities. So as much as, you know, you want to play around uh, with stuff. And with Alfred, you know, I thought, what's the most recognizable thing about Alfred? I mean, is that he cares about Bruce Wayne, that he, you know, is kind of like his mentor and, you know, his, you know, kind of like, it's not just a butler. He's like an older gentleman who cares for him. And I thought, you know, it wasn't that much of a leap to make him his uncle. Uh, and I thought it would be fun, again, if, you know, the way he got his name, Alfred Pennyworth, was because he was married to a British guy. <laughs> and, you know, it's just kind of fun to do that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I, 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 like, uh, I like playing with IP, too, definitely. I like to see how you can twist, you know, the things that we know into something that's still recognizable, because obviously Alfred is still a mentor, still, you know, the smart, capable, calm, you know, presence in Bruce's life. <laughs> it's, not, it's not beyond dusting a thing or two, if, if it should come up, sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, well, when you do that, do you think about uh, fans at all? Because, you know, obviously um, internet fans uh, run the gamut, but I'll, I'll never forget that when uh, the first uh, I'm so old that I'm, I, I still remember Sam Raimi's uh, Spider-Man as, as, as my Spider-Man. But I know that's like seven Spider-Mans ago or however many it's been. Uh, and he had the organic web shooters as opposed to making himself, uh, making them himself. Because he's also a brilliant scientist who's in high school, sure. Um, and I always thought, well, what a great change. Because now that's a scene of exposition we don't have to sit through. 
he's he's already got spider powers. Now he's got organic webs. And you know, obviously everybody went nuts so so much so that there's never going to be another Spider-Man where he doesn't sit down and patiently make those web shooters because the fans have, have let it be known for whatever reason that's their line um, that you cannot cross. So when you're making such big departures with beloved characters, be it comic book characters or, or anybody else, um, do you worry about what fans might think or do you just... Uh, worry about that after the fact because it's it's your story now and you tell the story you want and then let the chips fall where they may later well i think that in as much as i worry about the fans is because i'm a fan too so i want to make sure that i'm happy um especially with the disney stuff um you know i feel like i'm the biggest disney fan so i Wanted to make sure that I was happy with the changes i was making um and with batman too, definitely, you know, um, but I don't think about, I, I, I think when you write, you can't think about the reaction to what you're writing. Otherwise, you'd never write, you know, you'd just be so scared to write anything. Um, so, yeah, I don't really think about that when I'm making things, you know, and even after it's like, oh, you didn't like it, whatever. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> can't please everybody. <laughs> I'm sorry that this story didn't make you happier. However, we still received your money, so it's, it's fine. <laughs> um, when, uh, oh, what did I want to ask you? I had a, a burning question, and it's gone right out of my mind. Oh, no, I hate when that happens. Oh, I know what I want to ask you. Um, mm -hmm. So hypothetically, good news, I've just been granted the permissions for all IP for every character in the world, and I can give you any combination of universes for you to combine. If you could have anything, what would you, what would, what world would you want to play in? Um, I mean, my favorite book is Dune. So definitely Dune. Um, so probably Dune and Lord of the Rings. Those are probably my two favorites. So yeah. So well, so Lord, of the Dune. Lord of the Rings mashup? Yep. <laughs> All the internet fans would come for you with, no matter what you did. <laughs> You'd be savage in chat rooms forever. <laughs> um, but okay, I like it. I, I, I think there's what there's that new Doom movie eventually coming out. Um, whenever yeah. movies come back again, <laughs> if we can ever go to theaters again, we'll finally be able to see it. <laughs> Well, you and your husband are, are both authors. I mean, obviously, I'm assuming you're not traveling as much to do uh, events, but has your life uh, been impacted very tremendously? Has your routine been impacted by quarantine that much? No, I mean, it's funny. Quarantine is just everybody's on deadline, <laughs> you know, because um, when, when we're on deadline, when I'm on deadline, I don't leave the house, you know. So in a way, it's like being on deadline for nine months um what quarantine is like uh i had gone on a big tour in march right before everything kind of was closed so and i was wondering i was worried about going on the tour because there was you know all this talk about um the virus and stuff so we went on tour and i had like my clorox wipes and i had my hand sanitizer you know we weren't wearing masks we didn't know about that yet um, but yeah, it was, a, but there was a lot of hand sanitizer, <laughs> I remember on that tour. Um, yeah, you know, I, I do miss, um, I guess all the events that we used to have, you know, you kind of set your clock by book expo, uh, comic con, you know, it kind of, you know, gives the year, you know, you have these markers. Um, and now that they're all kind of gone or online, you know, it just feels like the strange, you know, it still feels like we're in March, even though we're already in November. So it's a, it's been definitely a very strange year. But on the upside, as my agent says, you're getting a lot of work done because you don't go on vacation as much. You don't travel as much. <laughs> so it's been pretty good for the deadlines, really. <laughs> oh, that, yeah, that's the that's the upside. I mean, what uh, how are you, Mark, other than the obviously brilliant decision to come on this show. Uh, how are you marketing books while in quarantine? What What's working best for you during this time? Um, yeah, we've been doing uh, bookstore events virtually. I just did one for uh, Owen Colfer, who's a good friend of mine. We did one for the new Foul Twins book. Um, and we did a bunch of 
by we, uh, I'm part of Y'all West and Y'all Fest. So we've done our book festivals online this year. With Y'all West, we got about 90,000 people watching online, which is kind of amazing because when we do the festivals, you know, kind of in real life, we get about 20,000 people. So I would say like, you know, we expanded our audience that way and it's just, you know, it lives on uh, YouTube. Anybody can watch any of the panels. And a lot of people, a lot of readers wrote in and said they were really happy that we moved online because they'd never been able to go to a book festival before because there's not one near, you know, near where they live. So in that sense, you know, it's been kind of nice to have that kind of reach. Um, but, you know, it is uh, hard. It's, you do miss, you know, the energy from that crowd. Um, we would open the book festival in our biggest auditorium with 3,000 people, you know, kind of screaming book fans, you know, or, you know, even just walking down the halls uh, at Comic-Con, you know, seeing everybody so excited, you know, you do miss that energy, you know, from, from the crowds. So, um, yeah, everything's on Zoom. <laughs> Which, of course, is uh, almost not quite like talking to a wall, especially not if you're doing a one-on-one -on -one call like this, but I find when I teach classes, I don't know if my jokes are landing. I can't hear the students laughing. I hope they are. Yeah. Yeah. Did I just embarrass myself, or did I, or did I, I, I make somebody laugh? I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, my kid is in eighth grade, and she said one of her her math teachers really funny, but you know, it's just it's everything's on Zoom, everybody's camera or you know microphone is turned off, so it's it's she feels bad for him. She's like, oh, you know, she feels bad. She knows that class would have been so fun in real life. <laughs> And of course, half the uh, students I imagine are, you know, hiding a book just off camera or uh, I game love all their phones. Sure. Yeah. Play with murder. I have no doubt. Mm -hmm. uh, what um, What has been your favorite reader reaction to something you've written? Oh, um, I mean, there's been a lot. Uh, the Descendants fans are amazing. You know. And they dress in costume and they send me their photos. Uh, when I did Blue Bloods, uh, again, this was like almost in the prehistoric age. This is before, you know, authors would have fan sites. They made their own fan site for the book, made their own role-playing game for the book. Um, you know, just really created this entire world around the book, which was really cool. Uh, one of my fans almost uh, ran over my editor <laughs> at a signing. She was in a uh, a wheelchair and a motorized wheelchair, and I think just you know kind of hit hit it too hard and and basically hit the podium. <laughs> and my editor had to jump out of the way <laughs> before being run over. So because um, she was so excited, you know, to be there, it was it was kind of great. <laughs> If your editor has to has yeah. to suffer just a little bit, yeah. so you know that that yeah. enthusiasm is there. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's why editors make the big bucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> we all survived. <laughs> uh, an esteemed audience knows I have to ask because uh, I ask everybody. Uh, sure. Melissa De La Cruz, have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? Oh, uh, I would say no to the flying saucers. Because, um, yeah, I don't know. I would I would probably think, like, you know, an airplane was a planet or whatever. So I don't really trust my eyesight <laughs> to on those kind of blinking lights. You know, it's probably just an airplane. Um, so what I just heard is you're seeing them all the time but rationalizing them away. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do believe in life on other planets, though. So I definitely believe in that. But I, you know, I just haven't seen a flying saucer. Um, ghosts, you know, I think I would be too scared, you know, if I ever really saw one. Um, especially I come from, you know, uh, Filipino culture and background. We very much believe in ghosts. And my dad, you know, has a lot of stories, a lot of ghost stories. So, you know, I think if I ever saw one, again, that would be a little too scary for me. Um, but definitely I believe in their existence. Um, I have a friend whose niece and I think uh, uh, the cousin, you know, the dad of the little girl, both come from an Irish family that say they see ghosts all the time. 
And it's just this boring thing that they can see. Like, I think she went up the Tower of London and saw some old lady knitting. Or she'll see, she'll just see people that nobody else can see. And they're totally matter of fact about it. They're like, oh, yeah, there's a ghost. Saw one. <laughs> and I'm just kind of like, what? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I don't know. You know, it, that seems a little bit too much. <laughs> but maybe. <laughs> Who's to say, you know, <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> well, certainly, I have not... Um seen a flying saucer but it is on my bucket list because i just i feel like the world would be a more interesting place after that well that's pretty yeah. interesting even before but uh, say we haven't already been visited you know that they've already been here and went you know just said oh okay there you guys are <laughs> well, the pentagon has been uh, repeatedly confirming <laughs> yeah a reality yeah. throughout the year definitely <laughs> We don't have time right now. We're busy, aliens. Maybe, maybe <laughs> next year. We got other stuff going on in America this year. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so, 53 books. What? Uh, I'm sorry, 63. I keep, I keep taking Ted off. I apologize. What keeps you writing, and what do you still... What, what do you wish to do that you haven't done over the course of, of 63 books? Um, nothing. <laughs> I, I mean, I've done it. Uh, if I want to write it, I wrote it. Um, I even wrote uh, a book that I've been talking about. I think I've been talking about it for 10 years to my husband. We bought our house in Palm Springs. And when we bought it uh, almost 10 years ago, I'm not quite 50 yet, but we bought it right two years before my 40th birthday. And I said, oh, this is going to be my 40th birthday present. And we're going to have this huge party. We're going to, like, have magazines come out and shoot us. And, like, you know, this is going to be, like, the big 40th birthday celebration house. Uh, and I joked that that was my 40th birthday gift. Um, and that, But we never had the party. And we had lots of other parties. But we didn't have that exact party. And I wrote about it in a book called The Birthday Girl. And I'd been wanting to write it because I wanted to write about this woman who was so self-aggrandizing because I was so shocked at myself at that age that I was I had such a huge ego and this, you know, kind of like delusions of grandeur. And I wanted to write about this woman who wants to show off so much and, you know, bought this house in Palm Springs for her 40th birthday. And just as she's having this insane party, you know, everything falls apart. So I'd been talking about this book for about, um, maybe eight years and I finally wrote it <laughs> and it came out last year. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my last, you know, like what have I not done, you know, question. Like if you'd asked me even two years ago, I'd say, oh, I have this book. It's my Palm Springs book. I always called it my Palm Springs book. Um, but yeah, I finally wrote it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel really lucky. I get to tell the stories that I want to tell. You know, I, I figure out a way to, um, you know, uh, match my interests with my job um, and to write the stories uh, that I'm already contracted to write. You know, like I don't have a side gig <laughs> where I have to get something out, you know, like everything kind of is in the books. So, um, so I feel really lucky that I get to do that. Let's see. I'm watching our time and it flies, but it always does. Where's it go? Uh, <laughs> I've got about two more questions for you, and we'll call it a night. Let's see. Okay. Sure. Um, you mentioned uh, ego, so I feel it's it's fair to follow up because you have had such a successful career. Uh, what what bestseller list have you not been at the top of? Um, when you're having that success repeatedly, it only makes sense that sooner or later you're going to sit back and think, well, you know, I, I'm I'm pretty darn good at this, evidently. Um, um, we, we talk a lot on this show about uh, a healthy writer ego because you don't want to be so shy that you're afraid to put your thoughts on the page or terrified to work, but you don't want to get so egotistical that you're not taking advice from others. How have you managed your ego so that it hasn't been a detriment to you? Yeah, um, I do think that all writers need to be really confident. Um, and, and by that, I mean, you know, you need to kind of believe in yourself and to believe that your vision for that story or, you know, you, your talent, your writing is 
worthy to be put out there because if you don't believe in that, who's going to believe in it? You know, um, and especially with books, you know, in movies, you have to go through so many people have to like it. Like, and I even um, told, told my editor, if I can't convince these four people, you know, who published, you know, so many of my books, that this is a good idea, then it's probably not a good idea, <laughs> you know, um, because they're going to have to convince the sales team, convince the marketing team, and then that team has to convince the booksellers, and the booksellers have to convince, you know, the readers, so you have to convince so many people, um, and so if you don't believe in yourself, how is anybody else going to believe in you? Um, and then the other thing that you said is, you know, not to be so egotistical that you can't take advice. You know, definitely, you know, while being confident, you do have to be humble. And, you know, and I think that you can always learn. And I always kind of remember that there's always, you know, something new to discover about the world or, you know, some new. And I, I love working with uh, the young editors. Uh, so my editors have now become the publishers, you know, after 20, 25 years, they're all at the heads of all the publishing companies. You know, we all started out, you know, young people together and now we're not. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, uh, the assistant editors are kind of these young, uh, young people in their 20s. And, uh, and it's so fun to work with them. And it's fun to work with, um, you know, just fresh voices, you know, and, uh, you know, my goal is to never be that old lady on the lawn, you know, shaking my <laughs> fist. I mean, I, I, I really do think that young people are really interesting. And I think, you know, you need to kind of learn how to speak their language and see what they're interested in, in now, you know, especially now when they have so much more of a voice and, you know, they're changing, you know, our culture, you know, um, for the better, I think. Um, you know, I, I find it fascinating. I think, and I think it's really fun. It's invigorating. Keeps me young. Um, but yeah, I my only time when I had, you know, not just during the time of the Palm Springs House was also the time when we were selling Blue Bloods as a TV show. This was about ten years ago, also, and uh, we had gotten all these yeses. We were going to do it with McGee's company. And Warner was going to do it. So it was like, yes, from Warner. Yes, from McGee. Yes, yes, yes. It was working on the pitch, working on uh, on the show. And they said, oh, it's definitely going to be in the CW. You know, the CW is so excited. Um, they want a vampire show. And, you know, my ego and my big head just got gigantic. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then it didn't happen. You know, the CW passed. Because at the same time, they were developing a show called The Vampire Diaries. So that show was dead to me. <laughs> that was my time slot. <laughs> that was my 10-year series. Um, but, you know, but after I went, and, and it's funny, my husband says, oh, God, you were so horrible at that stage. You know, nobody could say anything to you. And I remember that. Um, so ever since then, you know, I really kind of, you know, it's like, am I, I think ever since then, when I thought that I was going to have this huge TV show, like, uh, and it didn't happen, you know, I've kind of become a little bit more grounded, I would say. And, you know, it's funny because a year later, we did Witches of East End, which did become a TV show. And even though that actually happened, my head did not get big at all. <laughs> I was like, that's never going to happen to me again. That was really terrible to be that kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it was just a phase, thankfully. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, my uh, final question is always some variation of, if you could go back toward the start of your career, middle of career, where would be most helpful to you and give yourself some advice that would have made a significant difference for you and might make a difference for everyone who's listening, what would you go back and tell yourself? Hmm save a lot more of it <laughs> save a lot more <laughs> of the hits <laughs> you know um and it's it's funny uh i guess in the beginning of my career you know i i was always kind of planning for it you know the the, the fact that i'm sitting here in a way doesn't really surprise me i knew i was going to work really hard and i knew i was going to crack it i just had to get lucky um and I feel lucky that I did get lucky. Um, yeah, I think I would say, you know, don't be so stressed. 
because there was a, bu a bunch of times when I feel like I was a little bit stressed out and was a little bit too worried, you know, um, about certain things that ended up not being anything. You know, everything always works out. <laughs> well, I think that's the perfect note to end on. Um, where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on Twitter, more find out more about your books, all that good stuff? Sure. Uh, Melissa-Delacruz.com and uh, Twitter.com Melissa Delacruz and on Instagram, author Melissa Delacruz. This has been an absolute uh, privilege and a pleasure, and I so appreciate you making the uh, time to, to work me in between. I, I, I imagine you're going to write two more books tomorrow at the page. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thanks, Bob. And esteemed audience, uh, as always, head to middlegradeninja.com, get interviews with hundreds of literary agents, editors, folks you'd be interested in. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.